Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of occult on the digital airwaves. Yeah, that's good. Phantasms of the Living was written by Edmund Gurney, Frederick Myers, and Frank Podmore and published by the Society for Psychical Research in London in 1886. It was a seminal text for the field of parapsychological research. Just over a thousand pages spread over two volumes with hundreds of pages of addenda, the authors carefully laid out the case for telepathic hallucinations. By this, they meant sensory experiences or thoughts projected across a distance from one mind to another. Hallucination in this context is not a sign of malady or misapprehension, but rather an indication that these experiences are mental and don't assume an independent material or physical existence outside of the minds of the people involved. So we don't want to think about hallucination as a, as a fantasy necessarily. Their research involved a survey of parapsychological experiments across the Western world, also a series of experiments that the authors themselves could, conducted and a vast collection of narratives, mostly from citizens of the United Kingdom, from people who encountered a phantasm of the living. What is a phantasm of the living, you ask? Well, a phantasm of the living is a kind of a double. Most of the experiences that these guys collected of these doubles suggest that they were generally produced when a person is in crisis or at the point of death, sort of like a near-death experience. As a person was dying or about to get into a carriage accident, for example, suddenly they would appear to a friend the next house over, or maybe even a thousand miles away. Stories of these phantasmic encounters were carefully researched and verified as far as the authors were able to, and when verification was incomplete or impossible, they simply noted it before sharing the narrative. I I say all this to to let you know how serious they were about qualifying their evidence. To rule out the problem of misremembering or uh, suggested memory, they sought out witnesses and retrieved death records and newspaper reports of accidents to verify the details they heard in the stories. Taken together, the hundreds of the reports that they received assumed a substantial weight as evidence for a phenomenon that science was at the time and continues to ignore. Today, on Occult Confessions, we consider the apparition of the dying man as a doppelganger. My name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson, joined by our uh, Instaquisitor, Shannon Landers. Hello. Hello. <laughs> How are things? <laughs> They're going. <laughs> you, you just got back from Hawaii, so you you are not tan, though. I am I not I saw you tan. yesterday I because it... you don't tan. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I get more freckles or I turn red. So what did you do? You sort of hid under coconut trees? Do they have coconuts in, in Hawaii? Yes, but they're. N- I found out that they're not native there. Apparently, oh, non-native spe- invasive yeah, species. Think- but you can't like hide under a pineapple. They're tiny, aren't they? Those plants. <laughs> Can I you hide? <laughs> I just hid underneath pineapple trees. Actual pi- uh, pineapple? Are they trees? Are they what trees? is it? No, they're I, bushes. You were in Hawaii. <laughs> I didn't see them. <laughs> I I'm all. We're, we're all go good. I'm pretty sure it's like a shrubbery type thing. <laughs> but not enough to hide you from the sun. I could dig a hole underneath them and hide in a hole, I guess. I'd like to introduce again Anna Pavon back on the scene. Hello. Pineapples Hello. are small plants. They are not trees. 
Let me see. Anna's a vegetarian, so she knows all about fruits. Vegan. However, Vegan. I just Googled it. <laughs> Vegan or pineapple? Pineapple. <laughs> so Anna, Anna is untitled. However, uh, I want to thank uh, Brian on our uh Discord for suggesting a title for Anna, which I liked quite a bit, uh, and we'll see if it grabs Anna when I announce it. Uh, suppose Anna that your official name as an alchemical actor is the originator of the origin. Ooh. Oh, is this from um... from sex worship? Is this from sex worship. You don't even remember where it comes from. <laughs> originator of the origin. I I kind of like that. Honestly, yeah. I'm not I'm not against it, Brian. It's a little meta. There you go, Brian. All yeah. right, I think I think that's a keeper, Brian. So I know you have been officially titled. I will add a, insert a sound effect there. Shout out to Brian. Wanna <laughs> <laughs> just barely remember the uh, origin of your <laughs> originator of the origin, and yet it has been adopted. Uh, shall we pledge it out? We, the members of the Secret, Secret Order, Order of Alchemical, of Alchemical Actors, Actors, do solemnly do commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. Know it. I'm sorry. It's so weird. I got like, I got like 50% of that, I think. Yeah, you, you, you too. We'll just accept that as having been accomplished. Uh, all right, here's another thing. Boy, oh boy, we're off to such a good start. Uh, now, I need, uh, let's say, Shannon to open the Order of Confessors. Now, you simply do this by making a sound, any sound. Go. Oh, that was nice. There you go. <laughs> Thank You're you. back, on, back on the horse. Uh, we want to welcome a couple of uh, patrons this day. And I also want to uh, let you know that we're a bit behind on patrons. Our episode recording got a little out of whack. Um, so we are going to get caught up with all of our patrons next week. If you have not heard your name yet, probably it will happen then. We want to welcome Angel T and Nathan W. And uh, welcome back Slump, uh, who was not Slump before, but is now Slump. <laughs> Yay! Welcome back. Right. <laughs> uh, speaking of Patreon, uh, Luke, our uh, pr- Discordia man, Discord man, I don't know, he has a title, Producia Discordia, there it is. Uh, Luke and I did a bonus episode uh, that was based on our, we guested on the Black Mass Appeal podcast uh, last month, or maybe two months ago now. And uh, then we went ahead and did a full bonus episode covering some of the material that I touched on in that episode, but uh, going deep into the origins of Lucifer Lucifer and the Garden of Eden and uh, original sin and all all those lovely things. That's very cool. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, all of our patrons get to enjoy that. Uh, You can join for any dollar amount and uh, you have access to our main bonus episodes. Then as the dollar amounts go up, we have more treats for you. Um, but I encourage everyone to check out Patreon, check out YouTube. We've been releasing uh, new stuff, new material over there on YouTube as well. Uh, so if you haven't popped on over to YouTube, or if you just want to listen to the podcast on YouTube, if you're going through the back catalog, Dan has been posting those up for everybody to enjoy. And uh, that's enough plugging. That's enough confessing for the day. Shannon, uh, another sound, please. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that is the sound of Shannon sliding underneath a pineapple shrub. (laughs) (laughs) All right, are we ready for these phantasms, ladies? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
All right, let's start with the way this this uh, project is laid out. And I have been wanting to talk about these books for ages because I don't have time to read things for fun unless I'm doing it for the podcast these days. <laughs> Two oh. kids, man. So, uh, and, you know, I do have to produce 25 episodes on it every year. So there's not a whole lot of time for, you know, just dicking around. Rob. Yes. You do great. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's why you're here. That's why you're the originator. <laughs> so, the argument uh, made by our man Myers, Podmore, and Gurney uh, is spread over two volumes, and that argument is in a few parts. We're going to go through one, two, three here. Number one, telepathy is a fact of nature. All right. Okay. Number two, phantasms of persons undergoing some crisis occur with a frequency which mere chance cannot explain you accept both of those things so far i mean i'm going to prove them to you but yeah actually i do (laughs) so x plus y telepathy plus phantasms equals these phantasms whatever else they may be are an instance of the supersensory action of one mind on another so they're saying these phantasms, they happen, they cannot be explained, but telepathy is real. Therefore, these phantasms are a symptom of telepathy. And it's because of a frequency? Well, I don't know if we're going to get into too much explanation so much as just proving that these things are true. Okay. But, I mean, we can interpret as we go, Anna. You're welcome to. Okay. I am. In my brain. Feel free. In his introduction to the two volumes, Myers lays out the case for why the book focuses on apparitions of the living rather than those of the dead, despite the fact that hauntings and ghost sightings were also fairly common, particularly at seances in the late 19th century, and let's be honest, right up to today. Apparitions of the living are easier to prove than apparitions of the dead because, now this is not too much of a head-scratcher, there is a living person to give evidence as to whether these accounts are veridical or not. Okay, now wait a second, Rob. Wait, 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 wait. I was following you, yeah, obviously, but veridical. What the hell do you mean by that? By veridical, Frederick Myers means that there are real-world correlations to the subjective experience of the person seeing or sensing the apparition. All right. So let me see if I can do an example. Let's say Shannon, uh, she she thinks there is a ghost in her room. All right. She calls us up on us. She's like, hey, you guys, there's like a, it's a ghost. What's the ghost like, Shannon? <laughs> Very tall, but has a kind smile. <laughs> <laughs> Casper, the friendly ghost, but in giant form. Abraham Lincoln, the friendly ghost. (laughs) (laughs) So Abe Lincoln, the friendly ghost, is visiting me, Rob. Okay, and and Anna's like, well, yeah, she, uh, Shannon, you know, sometimes she uh, she hits those white claws too hard. Maybe she's just hallucinating. Um, and but Shannon's like, but wait, I have taken a photograph of the top hat that Abe Lincoln's ghost left on my desk. That's Um. veridical proof. Like physical evidence that it was there. Some kind of evidence, yeah, to back up the claim. Because we can't be sure of anything that happens in anybody's head. I say this in class and it always upsets my students. But we can't trust anybody, ultimately. You know, if we're we're really being serious about this, I can't take your word for it on anything. I need something to back it up. And that's what veridical phenomena is. And that is true. You know what I'm imagining right now? Have what? you ever seen Invisible Dad? 
It's this dad that is he becomes invisible and he Isn't that just Mrs. Doubtfire? No, no. Invisible (laughs) dad and and Mrs. He's not invisible. He turns into their In a way. (laughs) He's disguised. That's disguised. But invisible dad has on like sunglasses and a hat. So it's just floating sunglasses and a hat. And I just imagine like Abraham Lincoln ghost that a top hat's just floating <laughs> he's floating around. Is he wearing sunnies? He wears sunglasses. <laughs> I so I have a question. So taking a picture of the hat, does that mean that hat is physically there? Or is it he, he, did possibly Abe come and brought his hat and left it and now the hat is there as a physical thing? As an investigator, I would accept either one. Now, of course, if Abe manages to leave his hat and you have some evidence that it you know, materialized out of thin air, that's really cool. I would also accept the photograph as evidence, even if the hat dematerializes, right? Because that is a physical piece of evidence. You you can show it to us and it's objective. It's outside of you. I'm not relying just on what's in your head. Okay. Theoretically, I could also you know, rely on, I don't know, Anna, if she wasn't with you. You know, let's say you know, a house over, Anna was aware of the same ghost, and you both gave me this report knowing nothing of the other's report, so there was an opportunity for you to taint each other's accounts. So there's a veridicality to that as well. It, if I can get intersubjectivity is really what that's called, meaning that multiple people are reporting the same thing separately and independently of each other, that starts to take on the quality of evidence too. Okay, and this is the same ghost, so it'd be multiple people seeing the same ghost yes, at the same yeah. time. But you can't be aware of each other because then you're going to taint each other's experience and you're going to influence each other. Uh, then we get into kind of like group or dual hallucinations, which are very common. You could get, you know, like a couple who convince themselves that they're being stalked or, you, you know, but we all know those couples that are, you know, a little off. They're both <laughs> a little off in the same way. That's people essentially like you can talk each other into stuff if you're in a you know certain kind of relationship, or you know as as uh, the leader of the alchemical actors because I'm, I'm a, a kind of a you know Svengali like guru I could persuade all of you all sorts of crazy things I just don't use my powers for evil. <laughs> right. That would also be a group hallucination though. You see what I mean? That that happens with cults. Is I'm, I'm making a joke, but you, that does happen with cults. No. Yeah. You, you could all be like, well, yeah, I totally saw Rob levitate. That's just a group hallucination. Rob, you weren't supposed to tell anybody about that. Ha ha ha. We're, we're uh, what you call it, uh, recruiting this way. <laughs> so uh, what were we talking about? Veridical phenomena. So Myers is careful to say that telepathy and not some sort of ghostly materialization, materialization is the best explanation for these doubles. So he's not really claiming my hat example. He's saying, that's too far, Rob. We're not going to really see a lot of that in all this. In fact, that's not the best way to explain it. It's really telepathy. It's really one mind projecting an image to another mind. It's not an actual thing appearing in the room. But he can prove it veridically. You got the difference there? I believe so. (laughs) So so, uh, it's worth taking the time here because... Uh, nothing that we explain going forward will make much sense if if we don't get these basic principles so I need to step back from my veridicality insofar as you know our example with Shannon was about finding some kind of evidence but like I said that evidence need not always be physical in Meyer's case 
He does not believe that any of the experiences that any of the people we're going to talk about here today involved a materialization, a physical materialization in space. He believes that he can prove that there is veridicality, that there is some evidence that these are true that go outside of the person's own mind. Yeah? But what they're experiencing is, in fact, a mental phenomenon of one mind projecting an image to another and not something actually appearing in the room. So he can prove it as if it is material in the room, but it's not ever going to go that far. That's interesting because it seems like the only people that would understand that it's true were the two people connecting, I guess. Like if there's nothing. So is it just like a feeling that they're both sharing? Like the two people communicate? It is. And then what Myers and his team are able to do is go out and find evidence that sort of triangulates those experiences and independently verifies that what happened to them is authentic. Cool. It's not in the form of a materialized body or hat or any of the things that we talked about initially with Abraham Lincoln's ghost, but he can prove it. Myers can prove it without having that stuff. So he's saying, I'm going to give you veridicality that's as good as Abraham Lincoln's hat materializing in the room but I don't need that hat. In fact, that hat is not actually what's happening. There is no materializing happening, but I can still prove it as if it's that good. You got me? Got it. You good, Anna? Is it one person's brain? It's my brain. Like, imagine the two of us. Like, tonight, I'm like, okay, I'm going to send Anna a message before I go to bed tonight. And Projecting. You, right. With that, I don't text you. I don't call you. Mm-hmm. You know, just as you're going down for, you know, going to bed... The two of us are going to sync up, and I'm going to let you see. Just get a little download. Yeah, I'll give you a little download, whatever my guru thoughts are for the night. And then he proves it. He can prove it with evidence outside of those two people. And you haven't told us that yet, have you? Well, we're going to do that next. (laughs) So (laughs) the question now is how, right? Rob, okay, that's impressive, but... How does he do this? So we got to get into specific cases. He does it in part through just like preponderance of the evidence. He collects so many cases that it's difficult to disprove all of them. But let's get into it. Even though the phantasms often appear at the point of death, they also appear in cases where a person is near death but survives. In this case, the body would not have necessarily given up the ghost, so to speak. So there it goes against the materializing spirit idea. To the argument that a dead mind cannot communicate telepathically, Myers argues that death is a process of dissolution, and so the phantom proximate to death allows for the possible prolongation of some form of psychic energy through the death process, even if the heart has stopped. That's what he's willing to admit so far. Okay, okay. So he's not suggesting that your immortal soul is necessarily going on a journey, although it, it kind of eventually amounts to that. That's kind of what I got from that, though. That's kind of what it sounded like he was saying. Your mind can psychically influence another mind at a distance, particularly on the verge of death or in a you know traumatic experience. All this having been said, Frederick Myers himself is not entirely sold on the idea that telep- telepathy fully explains everything that we're about to talk about. It is possible, he says, that telepathy does not fully encompass the cause of all of these phenomena. On one hand, it is ill-advised to multiply causes, given that telepathy can reasonably account for these phenomena. So, in other words, this is just a basic, you know, logic situation. If we can explain something with one cause, you know, Anna wakes up in the morning and uh, there's a dead frog next to her bed. 
if I say, well, if we look, the window's open and uh, look down there, there's a bunch of, you know, like frogs murdering each other down there. Oh, okay. But if Anna's like, well, Rob, actually, uh, I have an ex-boyfriend who has a serious issue with me and he used to call me a frog. And uh, so what he did was murder a frog and then crawl up through my window. It's sort of, it's the conspiracy theory argument. If it gets too complicated, then logically it's less likely. Multiply causes. On the other hand, telepathy may only be one feature of a much larger principle involving relations between minds and may probably be more complex than those which involve even the highest known forms of matter. So what he's really saying here is not that he's going to multiply causes. It's not going to be that, you know, Anna's ex-boyfriend comes to the pond, gets a dead frog, murders it again, climbs up to the window. He's saying that that dead frog... (laughs) is a symptom of a much larger thing that's going on in the world. There is a mass, you know, a, a frog Armageddon happening across the globe that we're missing. We don't have the sight of. So dead frogs then appear to me because... Because of the Armageddon that's happening. That's the thing we're missing. So okay. you're going... I, I, I mean, <laughs> we're playing with frogs here, but to take the metaphor on home... That telepathic experience is real, and telepathy explains it. But telepathy itself doesn't isn't a full explanation of whatever it is that causes telepathy. There's still some missing cause behind telepathy. So Another way to think like about a it, symptom I, to what's going really, y- to what's really yeah. going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, or like a an instance of it. It's one example of things that can happen. Okay. Like heat can do many different things, right? Or heat can explain many different phenomena. Okay. It's like a bifactor of... Is that the correct word to use? Eh, We'll take it. (laughs) That's the one that popped up into my head. Uh, Okay. So let's uh, let's get into this a little bit now. Let's let's get into the text. The bulk of the text is written by Edmund Gurney, the SPR's first full-time psychical researcher and co-founder of the Society with Myers and Henry Sidgwick. He studied classics and physics and was briefly a medical and law student. Like Myers, Edmund Gurney was a proto-psychologist, that is to say a pioneer in a relatively new field because psychology really wasn't invented or was being invented at the end of the 19th century. An avid fan of music, he wrote about the psychology and philosophy of sound in his book The Power of Sound. He performed pioneering work with the SPR on hypnotism and hallucination and inspired the work of William James and Theodore Florney, but his lack of an official university affiliation has, by and large, kept him out of histories of the discipline. Gurney was not especially enthusiastic about matters of spirituality, believing that a creator god didn't deserve worship if that god had also allowed for the existence of suffering, especially if there was no afterlife to look forward to. So he's not big on religion, is what I'm trying to say here. Sounds like it. Yeah. Uh, But Myers and Sidgwick persuaded him to join them in their parapsychological investigations after Gurney lost three of his sisters who drowned in a boating accident on the Nile. Whoa. Oh. Oh. While their death motivated Gurney, he remained skeptical of spiritualist mediums and claims about the human survival of bodily death up to his own demise. Gurney lived a relatively short life. He was born in 1847 and died in 1888 at the age of 41 of an overdose of chloroform. 
While suicide can't be ruled out, particularly since he was known to have bouts of mania and melancholy, the death was likely accidental since Gurney used chloroform to treat facial pain caused by neuralgia. What a character, right? Yeah, that's... Jeez. Gurney is very careful in Phantasms not to jump... Okay, before I get into... We'll get into the text, but the, the main thing I want to focus on here is Gurney is not... Uh, he's not an Arthur Conan Doyle. He's not looking for evidence of the paranormal... Uh, in with, with a bias toward the paranormal. His bias is really against the paranormal. Yes, his sisters died, but even though they died, th- the fact that they died is the reason he even attempted this. He was really reluctant to even give a crap about any of this. But they died, and he was like, okay, fine, I'll give it a shot. Gertie is very careful in Phantasms not to jump to any erroneous conclusions. He stays as close to the evidence as possible, drawing only the most likely explanation for a phenomenon in question, namely telepathic hallucinations. Telepathy is when the mind of an agent impresses the mind of a percipient. These, uh, the agent sends the impression and the percipient receives it. Mesmerism was the first modern phenomenon to demonstrate thought transference, namely between the mesmerizer and the so-called somnambulist or the person in the trance. This association with mesmerism actually damaged thought transference as a subject for scientific investigation, since science or academic psychology tended to reject mesmerism as a benighted and foolish practice of the past. This is important. I mean, really, psychology owes its existence in large part to mesmerism, which introduced people to the idea that there was a subconscious and that the subconscious could do wacky stuff. But the fact that mesmerists did things like thought transference, um, you know, and and all sorts of other, you know, like diagnosed diseases and, and all these sort of cool things. Psychology, when it was born, was like, oh, yeah, we're we're not those guys at all. You know what I mean? But that's like how they formed psychology was off of that. Yeah, it's sort of like, you know, your mother gives birth to you and then, you know, she She's tries like, to hang no, out with I you. I'm not that at all. Well, you are. Yeah, you're like that. Yeah. Mesmerism, birth psychology, you know, you, you take your mom to your, you know, your party or whatever and you're 15 and your mom just wants to like hang out with your friends. You're like, ew, mom, I don't know her. That's essentially how psychology felt about mesmerism. Oh. Not cool. Mesmerism. <laughs> Shannon's just reflecting on how bizarre this is. It's a metaphor. <laughs> Not cool psychology. <laughs> Not cool. Come on, that was your mom. Uh, <laughs> she was in labor for like eighteen hours with you. She pooped herself. It was a mess. Mesmerism included cases that demonstrated possible telepathic communication, but it also allowed for alternate explanations through unconscious perception. Some cases of thought transference were actually a product of the percipient reading the approval or disapproval of the agent through unconscious muscular movement or even the sound of their footsteps. So this is the idea that you, you some people are very per- sensitive, I guess, perceptive of physical signs. They're not really using their minds. You got me? Yeah, and their body's reacting. It, yeah, if you could see me, then you could just read my body signals. You might even not be aware that you can do it, but, you know, on an unconscious level, you can read my facial tics or whatever. Often, early mesmeric impressions were transferred through physical contact, which opened up the possibility of involuntary muscular action communicating some impression rather than the mind working directly on another mind. So if I hold your hand, I might be able to get some sense of how you're feeling. But then experimenters discovered that the percipient could discern objects thought of by the agent, just thought of, and began to try working without direct physical contact and with the mesmerizer still. 
So now we're starting to work toward better experimental conditions. Don't want to be able to see the person, don't want to be able to hear the person, don't want to be able to touch the person because unconscious impressions could all be sent that way. Perfect situation, you're in two different rooms sending messages. Among the first to experiment with telepathy outside of the context of mesmerism was the Creary family. That's C-R-E-E-R-Y, the Creary's. Reverend A.M. Creary conducted regular experiments in his home with his daughters and a young maidservant. He sent one of the girls out of the room and selected an object in the room which the girl was to name when she returned. Over time, the girls got very good at guessing these objects, and so Creary moved on to names of towns, people, dates, uh... He would have them pick cards out of a pack and even have them name lines of poetry with the company of agents choosing the line or card before the percipient entered the room. So you go out of the room, they would pick a line of poetry, you'd have to come back in and tell me what that line is. It sounds to me like it's just like strengthening strengthening intuition or something. It's like very heightened intuition. Pretty intense though. I don't know how you could send signals like a lot like how would you your intuition tell you what line of poetry i'm thinking of i don't know but i just that's what it sounds like <laughs> to me like just a gut feeling or intuition it's because it's, it's automatic a kind of right? muscle well, yeah you would just walk in and whatever psychic impression you would give me that line of poetry henry sidrick wf barrett and frederick myers came to test the girls themselves and generally were, were pleased with the results or at least they, they found they were positive the query case as with many early instances of parapsychological parapsychological research it's not without controversy gurney later found out that the girls had developed a coded system for cheating at naming cards with different gestures indicating suits and card values but this was only operable when the girls acted as both agent and percipient so you got that. So, you know, like Shannon, you and Anna are together on this. You know, you're both Creary sisters, Anna Creary, Shannon Creary. Shannon Creary goes out of the room, but you guys, you know, in the night, you know, tittering over your pillows, you were like, oh, we're going to, when I give you this signal, that means it's a heart. When I do this, it's an eight. So, you know, Anna comes back in, we pick the card. You were in the room with us. Who, who left the room again? I think I left the room. But oh, Shannon did. established okay. cues. For what? So Anna is in the room when we pick the card, and then you come in the room, and and she just like gives you the like you know like a catcher. She just gives you the little signal, and then you can tell us what card it is. And we're amazed, but it was just codes. So just they're just big old cheaters. Big old cheaters in in that instance. Um, okay. But it only worked if one of the girls was present in the room, and they did tests where there were no girls around. In one test, the experimenter wrote down the name of an object in the adjoining room, showed it to those assembled, and the girl, who had been in a separate room the entire time, entered with the object from the adjoining room. That's kind of amazing. Whoa. <laughs> so there was... She didn't even come in. She couldn't have gotten a signal. They, they picked, picked an object, wrote it down, and then she entered with it. Wow. She had to select the object before seeing the experimenter or any of the others who knew its identity. Here again, no code would have helped her since she saw no one before she had to make her choice. The girl successfully fetched a hairbrush, an orange, a wine glass, a toasting fork. <laughs> I don't know what the hell what that is. Like a like for marshmallows? Yeah, I'm kind of picturing that. Yeah, like you would hold it over the fire. A cup and a saucer. 
Well, you can make toast that way because they didn't have a toaster in, in like 1880. So that might be how you made toast <laughs> on a fork. Picture a very fancy fork to like hit up against a glass to like oh for toasting (laughs) oh oh my gosh it's going so many different ways (laughs) they got a cup and a saucer Um, oh they brought tongs the first time actually for the toasting fork they brought tongs accidentally the first time and then they sent them out and they came back with the toasting fork a cup and a saucer on the second attempt they brought a plate on the first attempt so listen to that like the objects are close they're getting some kind of impression fetching an object that looks like what they think they're seeing and then they end up with the correct thing they're like narrowing it down getting the getting an idea and then getting specific about it and actually getting the right thing so let me see if you yeah go ahead so they're not picturing they're seeing so they're not actually seeing like these items they're experiencing a feeling to make them know that that's the item they're picking yeah they're getting a psychic impression okay. and choosing the because they haven't you know in that other room i wrote down on my piece of paper you two were in the room next to me and i picked an object wrote it down on the piece of paper and it's in the room with you but you don't know what i've written on that paper because you haven't even seen me we're in separate rooms but you're going to enter with that object cool. it's like this feels like the right one and they're right (laughs) yeah you're often right or you're close in 495 object trials with non-family members some of which involved only a single agent 95 were correct guesses on the first try and 45 on the second think about that absolutely insane yes that's crazy 20 percent of the time they guessed a random object (laughs) nuts the last of these trials, the girls correctly guessed 35 out of 50 words transferred. Wow. Over time, the girls' capacity to achieve successful results dissipated, suggesting to Gurney, Myers, and Barrett that telepathic ability is sensitive and perhaps not an inborn or lifelong capacity. French researcher M. Richet's perf- performed his... Uh, M. Richet he performed his own card experiment with a large pool of percipients attempting to guess the correct cards. Here's another example of this style of research. While the guesses were far closer to chance than the guesses of the queries, Edmund Gurney notes that the number of correct guesses were considerably above the number Richet would have expected to receive by pure chance. Another set of experiments involved the percipient, because chance would be 50-50, so anything deviating from 50-50, if you have a large enough number of participants, is interesting. If 55% are guessing correctly, that's why. Why would 55% be guessing correctly? It should be even 50-50. Another set of experiments involved the percipient copying a diagram drawn by an agent in a separate room. You got me? (laughs) So Anna's in this room and Shannon's in the next room. There's a wall between them and the door is closed and Shannon draws something and Anna draws the same thing. That's the test. That's like even more so insane than the grabbing the correct object, drawing the same thing. And an independent auditor would have to sort of like adjudicate it because they're not going to be identical because well, right, you don't have but... the same skill. But are you basically drawing the same thing? The authors copied 16 of the 150 tests into the book to show how similar, if not identical, the drawings often were. So this is pretty good. 
uh, Guthrie, Gurney, and Myers also experimented with sending sense experiences of smell and taste, asking the recipients to describe the experience the agent, generally the investigators themselves, was having. They did the smell test near a kitchen that smelled like beefsteak and onions to mask the particular sense being communicated. <laughs> what? This is so weird. They're trying to do psychic smell tests. Can you guess what I'm smelling? <laughs> but they had it. They did it near a kitchen where the, uh, there was so much onion and beefsteak <laughs> that that was all anyone could smell. And then I would go into my little like closet and smell something else other than onion and beefsteak. And you'd have to guess what I was smelling in my closet. <laughs> While smelling onion and beefsteak. Isn't that bizarre? <laughs> they did a taste test and the recipients were in a separate room and had to guess what the experimenters were tasting as they tasted it. For touch, the beefsteak. <laughs> mostly that, yeah. It was, it was either onion or beefsteak. You had a 50 50 shot. <laughs> For touch, the recipient sat blindfolded with his or her back to a crew of agents who all inflicted pain on the same part of the body at once. In this case, 10 out of 20 were reasonably accurate. So I'm in, I'm in one room poking Anna with needles, and Shannon's like, my arm, my foot, my knee, my butt. Got me? Mm-hmm. Voodoo. Yeah, a little bit. It's a little voodoo yeah. They also experimented with unconscious impressions. A hypnotized subject, first Sidney Beard and then a boy named Fernley, unknown to the hypnotist, was to receive the answer yes or no from an agent. The agent was the hypnotist G.A. Smith. He had a list of 12 responses, yes or no, written out in order. Yes, yes, no, no, yes, no, yes, 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 and so on. 12 predetermined binary responses. Yes or no. Got me? Yes? <laughs> okay. The experimenters struck a tuning fork and then, not a toasting fork, and asked the hypnotized man if he heard it. Each time, his answer was supposed to correspond to the answer on the list. The recipient wasn't trying to guess the correct answer, but responding intuitively from a subconscious state. They tried this experiment with agent and percipient six feet apart, 12 feet apart, 17 feet apart, and the agent then finally in another room. They also tried it by shuffling the answers yes or no in a card deck so that they were only known at the moment of transmission. Out of 43 tries with Fernley, every single response was correct. No. Shut yes. up. Yes. <laughs> Everyone, 43 times he guessed correctly whether the answer was yes or no. In a hypnotic state, right? Yes. Yep. Straighten her <laughs> That's crazy. What? Outside of an experimental context, the circumstances became more difficult to credit, and so Gurney acknowledged the kinds of errors he and Podmore and Myers must control for. First are the errors of observation. Somebody sees something... Uh, and that they either misperceive or misidentify. For example, someone reports seeing a neighbor pass by the window and misidentifies the neighbor as an apparition when it's really just Joe from across the street. So uh, Shannon's like, I just saw my great aunt Gertie walking across my window. And it's just like, you know, the lady from the, you know, stop and shop uh, on walking to her car. It's just Brenda, Shannon. She's Brenda. She's Brenda, man. So misidentification. This happens all the time. This is why eyewitness testimony is not swell in a court trial. They're like, yeah, it's sort of like that guy. Uh, sure, that's the guy. 
Yeah, sure, that's that's absolutely the man I saw. Usually, we're not that confident. Then comes the subjective errors of narration and memory. Errors in the narrative uh, are when someone uh, tells something uh, that isn't necessarily a lie, but is more like an embellishment based on the person's biases. Memory is a more difficult problem because if the narrator misremembers, they do so honestly and often without exaggeration, so it's more difficult to discern the truth of the matter. Someone might imagine details that weren't there in an effort to complete the story or simplify the complexities in an experience. So, uh, I don't know, like, suppose, I, I don't know, <laughs> I'm trying to think of an example here, but you know, we can misremember things in a variety of, of ways, you know, like if I try to remember Anna's scene that she did for me in acting class, however many years ago, I, I may not be able to remember all the details of what she was wearing or how long the scene was or you know what grade she got but you know because I like Anna I might say oh I, I, she got a perfect score maybe she got a 48 out of 50 mm-hmm. you know, see what I mean it was yeah. spring's awakening I was wearing a black dress we forgot some of our lines and we did get a perfect score so. <laughs> <laughs> there it is for the record <laughs> so uh To obtain the best possible evidence, the investigators collect the experience from the agent, if alive, and the percipient with a special focus on the percipient. Their focus is on a first-hand account uh, as the best possible evidence. Both the so they don't want you know. Well, I heard that Joe said, we want Joe to say it directly to us. Both the agent's and the percipient's experiences must be simultaneous. In other words, the percipient must receive the impression at the same time the agent is sending it. Ideally, the percipient would have had their experience before knowing its cause in the agent. For example, if I saw an apparition of a dying person without knowing they were even sick, this would be more persuasive than my my imagination conjuring such an image because I know already that they are dying. Mm -hmm. Right? Oh, yeah. I read a book one time where this person is now a good time to insert story. Insert story here. Just just short. I read a book one time where this guy had that happen. And he was like, hey, grandma, you're sick. Like, you have cancer. And then she went to the doctor and she did. Well, that's pretty psychic. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, he knew. Yeah. That's pretty psychic, yeah. Uh, but we will be more persuaded in that instance does that work yeah that works pretty well because he didn't know he didn't have any independent knowledge of grandma being sick right no. theoretically he could have read something no he was signs, like but... he was like a kid oh that's wild yeah so it could be psychic it could be he's reading signs about grandma maybe something's a little off he doesn't yeah know. well in his book like he but... is he claims himself to be to be psychic which is you know in my eyes true because that happened <laughs> <laughs> so he's got a narrative to sell there for sure exactly in a perfect world we know nothing about what's happening with grandma and suddenly we see her or, or even better yet because we might assume that grandma she's old she might die soon uh you know our brother or sister or something we would have a sudden vision of and not even know that there's anything wrong with them that's impressive Also, there should be some witness or documentation to the percipient's experience as an independent validation to rule out a false memory. This is when we get back to Abraham Lincoln's hat and veridical phenomena. Again, Myers is not looking for an actual ghost to materialize in the room or any evidence that that happened because these independent witnesses and documentation are doing that 
the work of providing veridical proof without having to have a materialization. Here we go. Under these conditions, the volume of cases the authors collected creates a situation in which some form of telepathic contact is the best and simplest possible explanation for all the evidence, as opposed to the myriad alternative hypotheses that might be developed for each individual case. Sort of an Occam's razor situation, which, you know, science-minded folks often use against paranormal claims. But when we get down to all this evidence... Occam's razor falls on the side of the paranormal because to provide a physical explanation for these events requires you to go to extremely bizarre lengths. Period. It's not your not your everyday activity. No, this is not an everyday event. Rare recurrence, but they've collected hundreds of examples of it happening to different people. What was it, Shannon? So I was just curious. Um, before they performed these experiences, would they do some sort of like meditation before? Or were they just going well, to separate rooms like, I'm going to pick this? Or like, would they focus their energy? If we're talking about the their examples of telepathy, uh, I, Anna's right that they sort of like worked out the muscle. In the, in the case of the Creary family, they just kept doing it over and over again. And I do think they got better at it, like developing a muscle. Okay, but there wasn't like meditation like involved? It's possible. Or... There could be some focusing activity. It really would vary by person depending on what they think they need. We, we sort of develop rituals around it. But all the cases that we're about to talk about going forward from this moment on are sort of out of the blue. No one has done any preparation. Interesting. It's unexpected that this would happen. They, 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 it strikes them as a surprise. So they, they aren't trying to reach out for a psychic impression. No one's trying to really send them a psychic impression necessarily. And yet it happens. Telepathy becomes the easiest rationale in these cases for the hundreds of cases listed, even though this one might be accounted for by false memory or that one by, I don't know, sewer gas, hallucination. Telepathy can explain all of the cases, whereas sewer gas can only explain one or two, right? So you got me? So if we have 500 cases sitting in front of us or even 100 cases, and in one case, the guy was just like smelling sewer gas and he started to see things. And that's not going to be the case for the other 99 because mm-hmm. we're not going to be able to prove that sewer gas is present in the home in all those cases. Furthermore, for the cases that they include in their study, alternate explanations are always far more improbable than the telepathic explanation. We get start to multiply causes to try to explain what's happening when we can just say it's telepathy. The classes of uh, thought transference or cases of thought transference include the transmission of pain, emotion, or idea, like the fact that a ship has arrived safely in a port. Uh, Also dreams or externalized impressions, which include visual apparitions. These impressions often form gradually in the mind of the percipient. A figure may, for example, only be identified after it has been perceived, or it may gradually take shape, or the experience may take place in stages. This last version, in which an unidentified impression becomes more perceptible, is the most common. So Anna might see in her room sort of like a cloudy figure, or, you know, she catches something out of the corner of her eye, and and if she allows herself to focus on it, gradually she begins to see a face. And then, in the, the final phase of this, she can recognize the face. But that impression came long before she recognized someone she knew. You following me? Mm-hmm. So it is, it's like my brain would have been doing that. You're trying to figure out who it is. Trying to figure it out, so I'm like connecting it to people that I know. Yes, yeah. But at first it was a very hazy 
unidentified. Right. You don't so even this sure wouldn't happen if it was a, like I wouldn't be seeing a stranger, for instance. It's possible. It could. It it could happen. It, we'll we'll get into some of the cases, but more often than not, it's someone that you know. Okay. But you just didn't know it was someone you knew when you first sensed the presence. So is right. I was the, just like, oh. the presence. Go ahead, Jan. Is, sorry. <laughs> so the presence is there first, and then your body starts to figure out what it is. Mind, yeah, by, mind your and mind. body. Yeah, yeah. You're trying to put together what you're looking at. In experimental conditions, telepathic reception is best achieved when the percipient's thoughts are wandering, uh, wandering at random, and not when they are concentrating hard on receiving the impression. This is something that we work on in class, even as artists. I constantly tell my students that they need to let their minds go. They need to stop trying so hard and let the subconscious do its work. This is true of psychics and of psychic impression. The impression is communicated first to the higher mind where ideas are formed and is then promulgated downward to the rest of the brain where it is fleshed out. This is how Myers and Gurney are attempting to explain why you don't know who it is at first. You get the impression first and then you have to figure it out. If you're actively trying to focus and concentrate, then you're not actually going to be able to receive the impression. So it kind of does sound like what Shannon was saying, like, Maybe not necessarily a meditation before, but the act of doing it is kind of a meditation in itself. You would have to be in a uh, sort of wandering state of mind to experience this. Going to bed or, you know, just sort of like right. drifting okay. off, you know, something like that. Or just sitting, in, you know, sitting, looking at, looking out the window. I don't know. You don't want to be actively trying to think through something. Right. But isn't that kind of what meditation is? Uh, yeah. I mean... It, it, theoretically, this is less likely to happen these days because people are always on their phones. Oh, this is true, yeah. Keeping your mind busy and distra- you know, and doing rather than wandering. You're not daydreaming. Gotcha. Um, emotionally charged impressions are, in the author's opinion, most likely to develop into full hallucinations. So the more strongly we feel about it, the stronger the hallucination becomes. And by hallucination, again, they mean possible paranormal event, not just... A psychological aberration. Since these telepathic impressions don't often come fully formed according to the agent's intended communication, they are filtered through the percipient's own consciousness, which can add its own atmosphere and imagery. Since these telepathic impressions don't often come fully formed according to the agent's intended communication, they are filtered through the percipient's own consciousness, which can add its own atmosphere and imagery. The influence of the percipient's beliefs and ideas does not refute the telepathic communication, but rather reflects the joint action of agent and percipient in forming the hallucination. So, uh, you know, I send Anna images of, you know, me levitating, but Anna is really hungry while I'm sending those images, and she sees me just, like, holding a big bowl of, what do you want, Anna? Um, like maybe some some ice cream, but like ice cream, yeah, vegan ice cream, vegan ice cream. You know, it, it's improved people. Okay, it's really not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's really not that bad anymore. <laughs> so, I am sending an impression to Anna. She's seeing me communicating with her, but because of her personal experience, she's distorting that image a bit through her own subjective experience you see what i mean Mm -hmm. technically we do this with everything we experience in life i was gonna say it (laughs) sounds like just the way it's just what it is to be Mm -hmm. yeah i mean for example 
I don't want to talk about sex today too much, but just generally when we go through life, whether we like it or not, whether we want to admit it or not in hashtag me too world, we know the people we would bang or not, whether it's appropriate or not. We have what's called the sexual bearing toward all other people. And that colors the way we interact with them, whether we know it or not. Yeah, I think that's kind of like a, a primal thing. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. It just it's a it's a film through which we or a filter through which we encounter reality. But in in the case of psychic impressions, it has a, a stronger influence, I think. I'm, I'm, I'm Shannon giggling like, over there. No, I'm just laughing. It's like, it's like had to insert sex somewhere, Rob. <laughs> I'm, all, that's, I'm here for so it. So, like, if you're like sexually attracted to someone, they appear, but like they're like in a silk robe. <laughs> I, I, I appear to Anna covered in silks and bearing ice cream. <laughs> Smoking a cigar. <laughs> Ooh, gross. <laughs> I guess that's a phallic symbol. Whatever does it for you. <laughs> yeah, for some people, it was a. It's like an aphrodisiac because of. Oh no! Yeah. I just thought smoking sure. cigars and wearing silk went hand in hand. <laughs> Eating oysters <laughs> and ice cream all at once. <laughs> vegan oysters and vegan ice cream, of course. For. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds horrifying. I don't know if they've invented those yet. Vegan oysters. They got chicken that's, nuggets and all that. Somebody, but. Oh, the chicken nuggets. Let me tell you something. The chicken nuggets are so good. Oh, you're with them. Okay. I'm you're there for it. the chicken nuggets. I'm with it right. for the occasional chicken nugget. <laughs> what the hell was I talking about? <laughs> T- telepathic hallucinations could also include information the percipient could have only had by supernatural means, confirmed as a veridical phenomenon from the agent. For example, if the percipient encounters a phantasm whose hair is a different color than they remember because the hair has actually changed color, or if they perceive an apparition of a person who has died, unaware that any death has taken place. So I could say, you know, I'm seeing Anna, but uh, yeah, she's all wet. Maybe it's because you uh, drowned in the pool. I drowned, yeah. Yeah. It would take us weeks to go through all the cases discussed in these two volumes. We're not going to do that. So I want to focus on the two varieties that Gurney, Myers, and Podmore conclude their book with. These, in my opinion, are the most interesting and the most persuasive. Reciprocal and collective cases. Those are the two ones we're going to do now. If you want the rest of the cases, you can. these books are for free on the internet. You can <laughs> knock yourself out. Link set it. Aside, <laughs> you got to set aside a few months of your life, but knock yourself out yeah link it what does that mean you'd send us pictures of yourself what are we gonna do no oh you cl- click link the link it you rob yeah. link it in the bio of the book if you would like to live stream yourself reading the book for several months though we'll, we'll post we'll, we'll link it <laughs> we won't link the book but we'll link you reading the book we'll link you reading the book yeah these <laughs> <laughs> so let's do the reciprocal and the collective cases. Just read Start with it reciprocal. To yourself, not even out loud. No, not no, not out loud. Of course, not out loud. It's just you reading. <laughs> I'm sorry. You get a free, an extra free episode for that. Sorry, we moved on. I brought it back. I didn't need to do that. So I'm sorry. <laughs> I wasn't gonna scold you. Reciprocal cases are those in which both the agent and the recipient report receiving information they could not have had by any other than telepathic means. 
Collective cases are those in which multiple percipients receive the information projected by an agent. Reciprocal first. One such reciprocal report comes from Cromwell F. Varley given to a committee of the Dialectical Society in 1869. Varley and his wife were on their way to visit his sister-in-law, who was near the point of death due to a heart condition, in the night. Varley had a vision of his sister-in-law in the room. Little did Varley know that he was suffering from a physical ailment that nearly killed him that night, but for this nocturnal visit. She said, if you do not move, you will die. But I could not move. And she said, if you submit yourself to me, I will frighten you and you will then be able to move. When at last I consented, my heart had ceased beating. I think at first her efforts to terrify me did not succeed, but when she suddenly exclaimed, Oh, Cromwell, I am dying! That frightened me exceedingly and threw me out of the torpid state, and I awoke in the ordinary way. By ordinary way, he means shouting and screaming and waking his wife. The next day, they met the sister-in-law who explained that she'd been greatly troubled about Varley's health and had psychically visited Varley's and his wife's room around 3.30 in the morning, seeing that Varley was in danger. Only by claiming that she herself was dying had she been able to wake him. So the sister shouted at him, I'm dying, and he was like, oh, I better wake up. She wasn't dying, she was lying, she was just trying to get him out of bed so his heart wouldn't stop. So she did it. Yeah, she saved she, him. She was like, she purposely did it with her psychic yeah. abilities. Holy shit! This case, while amazing, only skirts the category of reciprocal telepathic thought. Gurney suggests that it's possible the sister-in-law's dream could have been the only telepathic communication in this instance, which then shaped the dream of Varley, both of them dreaming each other. The case of Mrs. T.W. Smith, addressed to the SPR in 1876, is more difficult to reduce down to a single communication. Mrs. Smith had a strange recurring dream reported by her husband. My wife dreamt that she was in a well-remembered room at the base of the building in company with four females, two of whom were old friends and two strangers to her. They were talking and laughing and preparing to retire to their several sleeping apartments. She saw one of them turn off the gas. She followed them upstairs, entered with two of them into a bedroom, saw Bessie place some things in a box, undress, and get into bed. Then she went to her, took her by the hand, and said, Bessie, let us be friends. When Mrs. Smith went to visit her mother, she received a strange letter from an old friend asking to know whether she was dead or alive. This friend knew Bessie, and one night, as Bessie was going to bed, Bessie had cried out because she'd seen Mrs. Smith beside her saying, Let us be friends. The two women decided that the apparition meant Mrs. Smith might be dead, and so they wrote the letter. Mrs. Smith, are you dead? Mrs. Smith turned out to be alive and well and perplexed that she had been dreaming the same thing Bessie had. Got me? Got some goosebumps. Yeah. Both of them were dreaming separately. Same thing. In 1883, Mrs. Park of Elm Park. <laughs> Sorry. We do that. No. <laughs> Elm Park Gardens. Mrs. Park of Elm Park Gardens, very British name in a very British place, reported a story in which her husband was being treated by a mesmerist, Mr. L. One day, as her husband was sitting in the garden, Mrs. Park saw from a distance that her husband was talking with a man in a peculiar hat and cape. When her husband came in, she asked about the man, and he told her he'd been talking to no one. He'd been alone the whole time he was outside. I'm going to quote Park here. 
Two days afterwards, Mr. L., after giving my husband his treatment, came, as was his usual habit, to speak to me before leaving the house. After a few words, he said, it is odd, but the same experience has happened to me twice since I have attended your husband, that when in quite another place I have suddenly felt as if I were standing by his side, either in your drawing room or out there in the garden. As Mr. L. was sharing this strange experience with Mrs. Park, she noticed his hat and cape were identical to the ones that the man she'd, been she'd seen talking to her husband had been wearing. So both, so they didn't know this beforehand, but Mrs. Park had seen the man standing with her husband, and her husband was like, there's nobody there. And the man himself had seen himself standing with her husband, even though he wasn't there. Yeah? Are you amazed? It's like, it's like multiple dimension type of thing. I'll try to amaze you some more. Still more amazing are the collective cases. All right, now this is really going to get you. That, that stuff, I think, is neat. It's interesting. It's weird. But the collective cases, here we go. What's challenging about these is how difficult they are to explain as instances of telepathic communication, since it must be happening simultaneously with multiple people. If more than one person is seeing the same phantasm, that tempts us to think that there must objectively be see some kind of physical wraith in the room with them. But Gurney says that a material phantom is incredibly difficult to argue for, given what we know about physics. It's more likely, he says, that a telepathic hallucination is simultaneously projected from one agent to multiple people, or that the mind of one percipient may broadcast its hallucination to others. We're going to hear, you know, that five people in the room or three people in the room saw the same ghost. So that makes us want to say that there's actually a ghost in the room. But what Gurney is saying is either the person who projected the ghost is projecting it to all three people, or he's projecting it to one person, he or she, or they, and that one person is then projecting it to another person to another person you see what i mean so it could be like a lightning chain they're not exactly the same thing one person is projecting it directly to three people or projecting it to one other person who's projecting it to one other person and on and on so does that mean if that was the case everyone would be seeing the same kind of like entity presence yeah but they we would, would all be seeing the same thing but they could see like their version of it Th there might be some small variations yeah um, we don't get into that too much here in this instance, but I think it's conceivable. Cool. If you think I'm sexy, I'm in a silk robe. If you're hungry for ice cream, I'm holding ice cream. <laughs> if you like cigars, I'm smoking. <laughs> Whose brain is able to do that, though? Like, Wait, project uh, images to other people, project their visions. Theoretically, anybody, if you're in the right state of mind. So but psychics I, and sensitives are better at it. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So a practice person or someone who's naturally like gifted. Myers actually um, disagrees with Gurney that a contagious telepathic hallucination is the best possible explanation logically, but it's as far as Gurney's willing to speculate regarding the collective phantasm. So we'll just sort of leave it there for now. Okay. The first case they mention is of Jeannie Gwynne Betney and her cook, which is both a collective and a reciprocal event. Betney had the sudden impression one night that something was wrong with her neighbor. The same night, her cook, who'd had no communication with Mrs. Betney regarding the neighbor, had a dream that gave her the impression that the neighbor was in trouble. I'm going to quote Mrs. Betney. I decided to send a servant to the house to ask if all were well. The answer I received was, Mrs. J died last night. Her daughter afterwards told me that the mother had startled her by saying, Mrs. Bettany knows I shall die. So the woman on her deathbed says this. 
I decided to send a servant to the house to ask if all were well. The answer I received was, Mrs. J died last night. Her daughter, afterwards, told me that the mother had startled her by saying, Mrs. Bethany knows I shall die. I had never felt an interest in the lady before that memorable night. After the death, the family left the neighborhood, and I have not seen any of them since. So her cook says, I had a dream that your neighbor's dying. (laughs) What? First and foremost. And secondly, the dying woman says, my neighbor knows I'm going to die. Neither of them know about each other. Not neither of them know, right? So the neighbor doesn't know that the cook has psychically com- figured out that she's dying and told the woman. You get me? My brain's going in like five different directions, <laughs> but I, I mean, think I'll, so. Yeah. I'll just I'll walk it one more time because it's a, it's a it is a cool thing. The cook says to the woman, "Your neighbor is dying." The dying woman has no idea that that's happened in the house next door and says to her daughter, my neighbor knows I'm dying. So the dying woman doesn't know that the cook has had the psychic impression, theoretically. She she has no way of knowing other than as a psychic thing. And the cook has no way of knowing that the neighbor's dying. And yet both know she knows that the cook knows that she's dying. There you go. Does Does the woman know that she is dying? Yeah, I think the woman is, she's in bad shape. Oh, okay. Yeah. The investigator received both Bettany's report and her cook's account of her dream independently that had an experience that also turned out to be a reciprocal engagement with the dying woman, at least in Mrs. Bettany's case. Georgiana Paulson told of seeing a cousin, Caroline, pass by her on the stairs dressed all in black with her hands crossed over her chest. Startled by this apparition, she ran down the steps and immediately fainted at her husband's feet. <laughs> Extremely 19th century thing to do. It <laughs> happens all the time. The Anna's drama. constantly fainting at people's feet. Oh, yes. I, uh, <laughs> I, I, like I can't people. tell you how many times I've picked Shannon and Anna up off the ground. Actually, I am prone to fading. Really? Fainting. Yeah, I just did it a couple weeks ago. While you were dancing or just hanging out? Nah, just hanging out. <laughs> Hot damn. Yeah. The next day, she learned that a girl she'd hired to clean the grates had seen the same figure and refused to re-enter the room where she'd encountered this figure. So they both experienced the same apparition. That day, Mrs. Paulson wrote to her aunt and uncle and learned that Caroline was very ill and not expected to live. Both she and the servant girl had seen the same telepathic phantasm of the cousin Caroline. Both Mr. DeGurin and his sister saw the phantasm of another sister, Fanny, appear on the same night at the same time in May 1854. Both were in China while Fanny was thousands of miles away in England. I gradually became aware there was something in the room. It appeared like a thin white light about the foot of the bed. Fancying it was merely the effect of a moonbeam, I took little notice. But after a few moments, I plainly distinguished a figure which I recognized as that of my sister Fanny. At first, the expression of her face was sad, but it changed to a sweet smile, and she bent her head towards me as if she recognized me. I was too much fascinated with the appearance to speak, although it did not cause me the slightest fear. The vision seemed to disappear gradually in the same manner as it came. So, so I was about, I was like super convinced that he was just wrong and that people, 
it wasn't happening in their brains and that this must have been like a ghost that they were both seeing at the same time but the fact that they're in two separate countries two place two different places well i two mean two different the, places fanny is in england and the brother and sister are both in china but not in the same room and seeing the same thing the siblings were not aware that Fanny was seriously ill, but she spoke of them both to those at her bedside before she died on the 30th of May, 1854. Still creepier is a case from the 17th century recorded in a man's journal. Writing in the year 1652, Philip II, Earl of Chesterfield. I know all of you keep track of the Earls of Chesterfield. This is Philip. Uh, he woke one... I have the trading cards. He woke one morning while away from the home on business in London to discover a five-foot-tall white figure with a knot on its head and a black face towering above him. The figure vanished, but it had given him a vague worry about his wife's health, and so he immediately went home to his estate. There, his servants handed him a parcel of letters as he rushed up the stairs to find his wife in good health and talking to her sister Lady Essex and another lady, Mrs. Ramsay. They asked me what made me come home so much sooner than I had intended. Whereupon I told them what had happened to me that morning, which they all wondering at desiring me to open and read the letter that I had taken from the footman, which I immediately did, and read my wife's letter to me aloud, wherein she desired my speedy return as fear that some ill would happen to me, because that morning she had seen a thing all in white with a black face standing by her bedside. Two different places... They saw the exact same tall white figure with a black face towering above them. Wife in the ancestral home, Philip on business in London, see the same thing. My mind immediately just goes to why. Like, why are they, why is this happening? And you know, it's impressive because Philip had the experience and then his wife wasn't like, oh yeah, me too. She had written it down before she talked to him you see what i mean so it yeah. wasn't like his experience influenced what she thought she saw it was in writing wow what's most convincing about these cases is the fact that the two percipients were unaware of the other's impression betty and her cook had separate impressions of the dying neighbor and paulson knew nothing of the great cleaner's experience but learned about it from her family both of fanny's siblings had their experiences separately the last case is perhaps the most perplexing because it involves no death whatsoever but a phantom that seems to have formed from no particular source and chesterfield's wife had recorded her experience of it before he even arrived there are also cases of percipients seeing a phantasm simultaneously. In the interest of time, I'll share just one of these from Reverend J.N. Hoare, vicar of Keswick, who wrote in 1882 of an apparition of his mother who visited him while he was in the company of several others. We sat into the twilight, but there was still sufficient light to recognize each other and see objects pretty clearly. A figure approached me from the side of the room occupied by the large bed, and apparently from the side of it, moved directly towards me and placed its hand on my shoulder. It was a female figure, but I could not recognize the features. I followed it to the library, but did not see it again. I returned to my companions and asked them if they'd seen it. They replied in the affirmative. I said, if there ever was a ghost, that was one. All the people in that room saw his mother's ghost put her hand on him. Or his, not a ghost, she wasn't dead yet. She was still alive. She would die later. Myers appends an essay to the volume in which he questioned Gurney's conclusions about these collective cases. Myers said, 
There was no clear evidence that hallucinations as such could be transmitted between individuals. He argued that in addition to the mind possessing subconscious operations, there are also superconscious operations which transcend the limits of the ordinary. Subconscious thought exists below the threshold of consciousness, and superconscious thought resides above that threshold. You got me? Can so you? we have your ordinary consciousness right now. Is this what you're looking for, Anna? Yep, sure is. <laughs> Here we are. You're conscious of me talking, and you know we're having a time, and you know you got your room and your wall and whatever you're looking at. That's your consciousness. Subconscious thought is below that. So that's you know your repressed desire for your cousin and stuff. That's all you know. Your repressed desire for vegan ice cream, or in Anna's case, actual ice cream, is like jammed down into the subconscious. Okay. The superconscious is up above that. Okay. So it's not those jammed down, repressed subconscious feelings, thoughts, primal urges. It's also not the things you're experiencing right now. It's this other dimension of consciousness that is not, you know, in the center of your focus, but is also not buried below it. It's sort of like hovering above. Okay. That the makes super, sense. Superconscious. Yeah, I'll make it a little clearer. The superconsciousness includes clairvoyant or psychic ability, often implied in the telepathic hallucinations discussed in the two volumes. It also includes what Myers calls a phantasmic correlate, which can be projected, particularly by dying people. This phantasmic correlate is essentially the same as what we might otherwise call an astral spirit or double. For Myers, the correlate is by no means material but entirely psychic, projected from the subjective superconsciousness of an agent to the subjective experience of the percipients. It does not, or does not necessarily, occupy any kind of objective reality. The agent projects his or her psychic being or correlate out into the world where it can be perceived by certain individuals. So you've got a little ghost that you can send out into the world. We've all got little ghosts. Yeah, I mean, so says Myers. Gurney would not be on board with this. This is Myers' ideas. Uh, Gurney was, you know, not closed off to it, but he wasn't convinced. But Myers thinks this makes the most sense. We send our little ghost out, and that's what people perceive. It does sort of hover in space in a way. It's just not a physical thing. All right. That could be taken so many different ways, I think, depending on people's beliefs. There's a lot you could do with it. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. For Myers, there's something that we can project out. Right. I think you said this, you might have said this uh, earlier in the episode, but these instances only happen when, like, on the brink of death, like, as they're dying or have... Well, possibly. I mean, in the case of that 17th century guy, he was just sort of shocked by the strange phantom. He wasn't necessarily, you know, dying or on the point of dying, but then his wife had the same experience. So it's just these strange moments. So if... So does that mean people can communicate with people who are dead? I mean, I know that's a whole other thing. Uh, we'll, we'll save that for the end. We'll see what if you think it's possible based on Meyer's theory here. Okay. The collective encounter with the phantasm best illustrates Meyer's idea. He says, I treat the respective hallucinations of each member of the affected group as each and all directly generated by a conception in a distant mind a conception which presents itself to that mind as though its center of activity were translated to the scene where the group are sitting, and which presents itself to each member of that group as though their hallucinations did not come to them incoherently or independently, but were diffused from a radiant point 
or phantasmogenetic focus corresponding with that region of space where the distant agent conceives himself to be exercising his supernormality or supernormal. So he's saying that, you know, this group is looking at a point in space where this thing, this little ghost, is hovering. And they're all having their own subjective experience of the little ghost. Remember the ice cream, the silks, whatever? Mm -hmm. But there it is. It is there for all of them, and they can see it. It has a kind of objective reality. If Meyer's psychic doppelganger is the best possible explanation for collective phenomena, then it opens the possibility that this phantasmic correlate is also the best possible explanation for the reciprocal and singular encounters of the phantasms of the living as well. Myers opens his essay worrying about the problem of ghost clothes. That's right, ghost ghost clothing. He's worried about ghost clothes. We should all be kind of uh, logically. If there were such a thing as a ghost with an objective materiality in the world, what exactly is the manner of ectoplasm that makes up their pants? It's ridiculous to think that ghosts can form or make their own clothes. And yet so many ghosts are reported wearing the clothing that they wore in life or draped in flowing translucent robes. Think about this, Anna. You have a spirit, right? Theoretically. Mm -hmm. I mean, a ghost idea is that there is a spirit in your body. Maybe it's even shaped like your body. But your pants don't have a spirit. My pants have a spirit. <laughs> you see what I'm saying, though? Yeah, we, I do, we can I take do. our clothes on and off, even if we say that our spirit shapes itself to our body in some way. It doesn't shape itself to our pants. Our pants don't even stay on us that long. So, so ghost clothes. So, what you're saying is that it's the person who's seeing it. They just kind of make up the clothes in their brain yes yes uh -huh. the problem doesn't exist if the ghost is actually a psychic entity impressing itself on the superconsciousness of person person who then conjure the image of the ghost as a hallucination rather than seeing it in space so that's why i've been really careful about the word hallucination when you see my little ghost, it's really there with you, says Myers. It's really in the room. And we know from these cases of multiple people seeing the little ghost that they're all seeing it. But your individual consciousness is going to hallucinate onto my little ghost whatever pants you want me to wear. There are no ghost pants. That makes sense. Right. It's yeah. like everything we see is kind of what we make up. That didn't make sense. Uh, to an extent. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Okay. But I, I, as the projector of the little ghost, also have some agency here. The phantasm impresses the mind to view it as it chooses to be viewed and is filtered through the percipient's own subjectivity. In fact, the agent's psychic double collaborates with the mind of the percipient informing the phantasm that the percipient ends up seeing. For this reason, drowning men are often seen as wet. Back to Anna in the pool the agent sends the impression of their death circumstances, and this is how the mind of the percipient processes it. Okay. That makes that makes sense to me. Cool. Um. All right. Although Gurney is reluctant to give us a double, Meyer shows how collective cases of telepathic hallucination are perhaps better understood as engagements with real independent psychic ent entities, astral doppelgangers existing beyond the physical plane, or perhaps the body is the doppelganger and the psychic projection is who, underneath, we truly are. Yeah, last thoughts, ladies. 
Well, this is just reminding me of this lady I know who told me a story this past summer. Not going to get into like super specifics because it's not my story, but she basically was a young single lady and would go into this man's this sounds way worse than it's gonna be this man's store and they would talk all the time and blah 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 and one night she went to bed and she woke up in the middle of the night and he was sitting at her the foot of the bed and like talking to her and he was like don't worry don't worry you're gonna end up with and gave her this like I don't know if I should. I don't know if I should say exactly what it was, cause kind of personal. But basically, <laughs> it basically told told her that she was gonna end up with this man, and she didn't know he had a nickname. We'll say you're gonna end up with the rose. Let's just say the rose, and then okay. and then um, later, then like couple couple days later or something she found out she went back she found out that the man had died the day that he was at her the foot of her bed wow so that was and was his prediction correct yeah so she, she ended up with she the met rose? him a couple days later and apparently they missed each other in the store all the time she would come in and he, and then she would leave and then he would come in and then you know, they would always miss each other. And the guy was always like, oh, man, you guys got to meet. You love each other. And, um, yeah, she she met him randomly. Had no idea that the guy had seen, like, pictured them together or anything. And they were just dating and stuff. And then one of his friends called him his nickname, The Rose, for, you know, sake of the story. And uh, she was like, oh, my God, no way. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, that just reminded me of that story. Shannon, you want to bring us on home? Oh, yes. <laughs> I will try my best. <laughs> it's been a hot minute. I hereby declare close to this lovely episode. <laughs> this, this meeting? <laughs> this meeting. Until we... Of the, of the elk. <laughs> who, who are we as a group? It's been a hot minute. <laughs> it's good. I got you. You hereby adjourn and declare close this a meeting of <laughs> alchemical actors until such a time we get together and do it again. There you go. Yeah, you made All it. Right. Our voice actors today. Uh, we had a lovely group: John Cook, Sean Priest, Andrew Mims, Brandon Walls, Nikki Henderson, Luke Kinneman, and Bree Literal. Joining me around the mic, the internet mics, we had Anna Pavon, our brand newly dubbed originator of the origin. Thank you, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) One more shout out for Brian, Instaquisitor Shannon Landers. Bye. And me, my name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. Next time on A Call Confessions, we're going to check out ghost photographs and the phenomena, the Reichenbach phenomena, also known as auras, here on A Call Confessions. I guess, 
I guess I'm going to use this time to go to the bathroom real fast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or, or we can just talk. We could talk shit. <laughs> yeah, we should just talk shit. Yeah. The a little loud. Oh, he's okay. back. I'm back. Sorry. What are you talking about well, me? We were talking shit. And... Well, it's fine. I recorded it. I'll listen to it later. <laughs> we didn't get very far. <laughs> You're talking about my levitating? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't that great. I, I've seen higher. <laughs> I was sort of leaning a little to the left. <laughs> it was a little wobbly. 